0: Not necessarily in Sullivan County, but elsewhere in the world. (laughs) Um, And it's not like give us $200 and we're fine. So it's it's within the broad middle ground where they're trying to regulate how people run these short-term rentals and how people make money off of them, but they're still sort of encouraging people to run them or sorry, letting people run them and make money off of them. So. Uh, that uh, draft comprehensive plan is going to go to a um, public hearing on Wednesday, February 8th at 7 p.m. at the Keshecton Town Hall. Yeah. And again, these regulations aren't part and partial with the comprehensive plan, but they were created as part of the process of coming up with this update to the comprehensive plan.
1: Well, like most towns, villages in Sullivan County and like even... The governor has proposed, you know, having some kind of universal short-term rental policy or or uh, database. I think it's something that Philip uh, from Pantuso is going to talk about. It's great that you know, like we have these this growth in this business is bringing tourists to our areas, but also I I believe these these regulations are trying to make these businesses, uh, I guess respect the nature that we have here and respect also the neighbors because uh, there are people who live near these Airbnbs. Um, but let's keep on, on the, on the theme of rebuilding. And one of the, I guess, landmarks I always see driving a 17B is the White Lake mansion. And I understand it's looking to be refurbished and have a new lease in life. What can you tell us about this?
0: So it's the White Lake mansion house project. Um, and so from the way I've heard it talked about, this was a proposal that first received planning board approval way to go 2013. And that was extended a couple of years, um, but the construction didn't appro- begin at that time. So a developer is coming back to the town of Bethel planning board and saying, Hey, can we do this project? The, so, I mean, again, I wasn't there for the original for the original approval of the project so a lot of this is something stuff i'm hearing now but from what i've heard the building itself isn't exactly in refurbishable condition so the plan is to basically take the land and create a replica of the current building that stands there add two new buildings and then between them they'll hold or the two new buildings will hold 72 rooms um, and the main building will hold ref- like a restaurant and offices, and it will be this um, kind of uh, hotel area. A lot of the people, there, there was a lot of public um, discussion at the planning board meeting where this got brought up. And because of the amount of discussion there was, the planning board sort of agreed to hold the public hearing open and give the public more time to comment, give uh, the people behind the project more time to sort of refine their plans. There were some aspects of things that haven't really changed since 2013. I think people brought up concerns about the impact it'll have on traffic, on water and sewer and fire safety, and all those things, I believe, were a concern a decade ago and are still a concern. Um, Something that I thought was really interesting that the board sort of wanted to emphasize was things have changed in the area since 10 years ago. Um, the creation of a new 72-room hotel would have added a lot of capacity to the area a decade ago, but there are a lot more hotels in the area that have sprung up in the decades since. Uh, there are a lot more Airbnbs, short-term rentals. So there's just a lot of capacity in the area and the fact that this is a project that has resurfaced after a decade without the developers really doing anything about it in the ensuing decade um sort of lead led the planning board to see this as a new approval rather than rubber stamping an approval of a project that already got the approval
1: keeping on this theme of housing philip pontuso from the times union uh what can you tell us about short-term rentals
2: um, well, yeah, sort of two pieces of news here. Um, we can start with uh, Senator Michelle Hinchy's short-term rentals bill, sort of picking up some of what Liam was talking about. So over the past few years, as um, short-term rentals like Airbnbs and VRBOs have really proliferated in some of the high-tourism regions of the state, like the Catskills and the Hudson Valley, There have been sort of inconsistent efforts to regulate and track them on the local level. But really the effect of that has been to create a patchwork of regulations that is, that can be inconsistent from town to town. So you'll have, um, you know, one town that will say only allow owner occupied Airbnbs. And then the next town over will have no regulations whatsoever. Um a, another kind of issue with these efforts um good faith though they are is that there is often a lack of resources both manpower and financial to actually enforce the short-term rental regulations. Good example of this um that I've that I have talked about previously is in the city of Beacon in Dutchess County. They passed short-term rental regulations a couple of years ago um and as part of those uh Airbnb owners are required to register their short-term rentals with the city. The problem is that there is no enforcement mechanism um, and nobody in city government who can actually sort of keep track of whether or not the owners are doing that. And so very few of them have. So in an effort to address that, um, about two weeks ago, uh, State Senator Michelle Hinchy, whose district includes a lot of the Mid-Hudson Valley and her previous district included a lot of the Catskills, Um, introduced uh, a bill called the Short-Term Rental Registry Act, and it is essentially the first attempt to develop a statewide registry and statewide guidance on short-term rentals, which it basically defines as any rental unit that's offered for tourist or transient use for less than 30 consecutive days. It doesn't lay out strict regulations about what is and is not permitted basically leaves that to the municipalities. But what it does do is create a statewide registry that property owners uh, are required to register their units to every two years. That registry gets shared with the platforms like Airbnb, who then have to make sure that all of the listings on their platform are registered. And it gets shared with municipalities to give them a better picture of what the short-term rental landscape looks like in their region, so they can decide what kind of further enforcement they want to pass. Um, failure to register um, with that registry results in a $200 fine per day. Um, and then there's other guidance in the bill that um, kind of amends the tax law to make all short-term rentals subject to hotel occupancy tax. Some towns have done that across. The state, but this would basically make it a state law, and it provides guidance for how um, localities can actually collect that tax. What Hinchie told me in an interview um, was that uh, instead of putting the onus on every community and small town to figure this out on their own, this is a moment for the state to step in. So it's basically just kind of creating this this the statewide framework and guidance that, in Hinchie's words, can sort of empower local municipalities. Um, right now it's, you know, still in committee. It has a couple of co-sponsors in the state Senate. It was not mentioned in Governor Kathy Hochul's State of the State address last week, but we'll see if it's part of her executive budget, um, which will come out in the coming weeks. Um, one of the main planks of Hochul's policy platform is expected to be, uh, efforts to address affordable housing, which she's sort of describing. And what I think is kind of indisputably an affordable housing crisis across many parts of the state. She's framed it also as a kind of outmigration migration crisis. Um, I think the figure is that um, over a two year period, New York state has lost an estimated half a million people over the last decade. So, you know, Hochul says that part one of the factors of this outmigration crisis is a lack of affordable housing. Um, the pandemic certainly accelerated that, as people uh, moved to cheaper states and were able to work remotely, or moved to nearby states um, that you know maybe where they were able to find more affordable housing. The local administration said that over the last decade, there have been 800,000 more jobs created than housing units. So her plan basically is to try to create. $800,000 or 800,000 housing units over the next decade to essentially double the expected growth in housing supply. And the way she's doing that is looking at housing policy that promotes greater density, which to sort of put that into layman's terms means um, more mixed use housing, more large scale development, um, which is going to set up a, a fight, I think, in a lot of the regions where Listeners to Radio Catskill are listening from, namely the Mid Hudson Valley, and the Catskills, uh, because there have been a lot of efforts in recent, in decades, really, to resist that kind of large scale dense housing. Um, Kingston is currently trying to reform its zoning right now, um, which only allows for single family residential zoning. Um, there are a lot of other municipalities in the Hudson Valley and in the Catskills that only permit single family. Single family residential building and Hokel saying, and a lot of housing experts are, are echoing that if we want to have a more affordable housing market writ large, we need to build more housing. And what that looks like is, you know, larger scale, denser housing, which is going to mean fighting against some NIMBYism and what, um, Hokel termed institutional barriers, but you know, basically local, laws and regulations that prevent this type of housing. So it's, it's going to be, you know, it's an ambitious plan and, um, you know, we're not really going to see the fruits of it for, for, for years, if decades. Um, but certainly it's something that Hokel is setting out to do. And if, uh, the first few months of, uh, or the first few weeks of her first elected term in office, show anything. except that she's not afraid of a fight.
1: At least, you know, we, we said before that housing is being talked about now at the state level. And so uh, we could definitely see, we'll hope to see the changes that are going to be made um, either to short-term rentals or uh, made affordable housing available. Let's take a look at what's happening at the Catskill Park. There's a Catskill Advisory Group report and it talks about the park needs intensive management. What can you tell us about this?
2: Uh it means a lot of things. So this was a a comprehensive report put together by a group um sort of a coalition really called the Catskill Planning Advisory Group. Um that was essentially looking at um what needs to be done with the 700,000 acre Catskill Park in order to better management uh better manage it. Sorry. Um, you know, as, as many listeners will be aware, visitation to that park has, has rocketed up over the last couple of years. The report states that it actually doubled between 2018 and 2021. And I think on any given summer weekend, if you're at Catterskill Falls or any of the swimming holes or any of the popular hiking trails, you can see the evidence of that. Um, some of the impacts of this increased visitation Are the degradation of certain natural resources, uh, public safety hazards on mountainside roads. Um, there have, you know, been a couple of reports of people who have been hit or have, or have been injured. Um, overcrowding at trailheads, litter, illegal camping and more. And furthermore, um, the report lays out that, uh, currently there are not really the resources in terms of local services like fire, ambulance, police, uh, mountain rescue, et cetera, to actually deal with this. So um, it it lays out recommendations across six major themes, um, including benefits to park communities, traffic and parking, natural resources, et cetera. I think probably the, the headline one is this idea called whole park management, which the report really puts all of its weight behind. What it, what it identifies is that the Catskill Park is currently broken down into many different jurisdictions. So kind of like what I was just talking about with short-term rentals, what that means is you have a sort of patchwork of rules and regulations and no overarching comprehensive plan guiding all of that. So what it recommends is the, um, management strategies that operate, uh, management, management strategies to, to operate the Catskill Park as a whole park in a cohesive manner. Um, this, this report took, um, over two years to come out and featured, um, like I said, like stakeholders and representatives from a whole range of groups from hospitality and tourism groups to the Catskill Center for Conservation and Development, uh, the director of advocacy from the Adirond- Adirondack, Mountain Club, uh, founder of Catskill Mountain Keeper, Mountain Keeper, um, state like DOT and DEC officials and et cetera. So. It's basically a blueprint to try to better manage the park with an eye toward making it more sustainable so that visitors can t- continue to enjoy it.
1: We'll take a short break and when we come back, we'll hear the conclusion of the Reporter's Roundtable talking to Joseph Abraham from the Sullivan County Democrat and Chris Riley from the Schwancock Journal. We'll be right back. This is Radio Chatskill.
3: You're not taking our gas stoves away from us. On this week's On The Media, the mere mention
4: of greener appliances generates a whole lot of hot air, all the way to the statehouse. Wyoming is proposing a bill to ban new sales of electric vehicles.
0: On the next On The Media from WNYC. Set it off with your host, Clyde Alvin Gates, the third.
2: Set it off.
4: Saturday night at
3: seven. Set it off. On Radio Catskill. Go!
1: This is Radio Chatskill. I'm Patricia Robbio. We return to part two of the Reporters Roundtable. We take a look at what's happening in Ellenville and Ulster County and take a look at the upcoming election. It's coming up this November for local legislatures and district attorneys. Now, let's take a look what's happening here locally in the elections. Already, we're talking elections. It's early in the year, in the the new year, 2023, but already we have to start talking about the election this year. Joe, what can you tell us about the upcoming elections? They are hyper-local. We are talking about legislatures, and we're talking about district attorneys.
5: Yeah, so uh, this fall, all nine legislative seats are up for re-election in Sullivan County. There's a couple other big races, so we'll talk about that after this, but uh, I spoke to each uh, legislator this week, uh, Alan Sorensen, District 9 legislator, who's been uh, uh, serving his constituents there since 2008. Longest serving of all his uh, peers is not running again. Uh, he confirmed that uh, with us that he wants to focus on some other things uh, and uh, also wants to spend more time with his family. Um, and so uh, we got that. Uh, interview done and also, uh, Ira Steingart said that, uh, he is undecided currently. He's the second longest tenured legislature. I think Alan would have been completed four terms. Ira, I think, has completed three so far. If I'm not mistaken, uh, but he's currently undecided and the other seven are, uh, said that they are going to run again. Um, so that uh, should make for a very interesting, uh, fall, uh, this is always the craziest election cycle in Sullivan County, uh, because once again, we're going to have all the town races, uh, which happen every two years, just about in the fall and these big countywide races. Uh, we haven't really reported on the county clerk's race yet. So that'll be discussed later on. Um, but the DA's race is another big, um, race that's going to be taking place this fall. Uh, currently there's no Republican candidates that have, uh, emerged, uh, Megan Galligan, who was our uh, district attorney and still had time on her term, was reelected in November, not reelected, was elected in November to serve in the third judicial district of the state Supreme Court. So she is now a, a state Supreme Court uh, justice. So Brian Conaty, who um, was recently named her chief acting district attorney, who's 30 years old um, and has been in the office since 2018, uh, was uh Brian Connolly, because he was chief acting district attorney when Megan uh, ascended to the bench um he becomes acting district attorney and he has told the democrat that um he is going to seek election like for the position in November uh but uh, for now he's um you know in the position and uh some of the background on him is that he was hired in 2018 by Jim Farrell who was the district attorney at the time before he was elected to be a Sullivan County justice uh, and then he worked under Gallagher and, and, um, served as the lead prosecutor in connection with the uh, serious prosecutions involving guns, drugs, assaults, uh, driving while intoxicated, and has uh, appeared in several different courts in his capacity as a, as a local attorney. And so, uh, he's, like I said, in charge, uh, the sheriff, Mike Schiff has come out in support of him, uh, Megan Gallagher uh, was very supportive of him in a press release um, that was uh, announcing um, his um, ascension to chief assistant district attorney in December before he became acting DA. And uh, at his swearing-in ceremony, he actually talked about um, Megan and how important she's been as a mentor to him and a friend. Uh, they actually met, he said, when he was in college or law school, or when he was studying to take his LSATs prior to law school. Uh, and she helped tutor him and, you know, offered, you know, anytime you have any questions or whatever, reach out to me. And so he, um, talked about, you know, she was always there and how, um, you know, she let him know that there was an internship opportunity available when he was in law school. And so he interned in the DA's office in Sullivan County. And then, of course, in 2018, let him know, Hey, we have an opening and encouraged him to come interview before he was hired by, uh, uh, now the honorable James Farrell. Uh, so. Yeah, so that's his background. So he's sort of been in the thick of the whole DA's office. Uh, Tom Colley, who's been the deputy county attorney, uh, since 2016, uh, and has been in the county attorney's office since the early 2000s, uh, has come forward, uh, as seeking the, the Democratic endorsement as well, uh, for the, um, to run for, for district attorney. And um, so it looks like those two are sort of headed towards a primary, which will probably take place this summer. The election calendar hasn't come out yet, but um, Tom Colley actually was, uh, started his career in Sullivan County in the Sullivan County DA's office. He was hired in, I think it was, he said, 92 or 93 by uh, Steve Lundin, who sort of has a very um, reputable uh, historic, uh, you know, reputation here in the county. Um, I believe he might have been the longest serving district attorney the county's ever had. Uh, and, um, so Tom worked under him for about seven years until the late nineties, early. And then what happened at the start of the century was he realized there were a couple of, uh, people in front of him in the DA's office. And just because of the structure, you have eight, uh, ADAs, um, under the DA and, you know, they weren't really going anywhere. So there was really no room for upward, uh, you know, to move up the, the food chain. So that's when he took a position over at the, uh, at the county attorney's office, 2016. Uh, you know, in 2016, Cheryl McCausland, when she was named county attorney, um, approached him to be her deputy. And, uh, in 2020, when Michael McGuire was hired, once Cheryl retired, uh, he, uh, once again endorsed Tom to be his deputy. So, I asked Tom, you know, why did you decide like why you want to, you know, seek the DA's position? He mentioned that he missed the ex- the excitement with the criminal element and trial work. Uh, he had mentioned that in the county attorney's office, uh a lot of the work they do is because there's so many different facets is sort of uh, outside agencies or, you know, they hire out to do to deal with a lot of that. So, um he missed that aspect of it and um he also just mentioned that, you know, he works because of his position as deputy county attorney and as parliamentarian in the legislature, uh, with all these different departments, and that's important for a DA to, to kind of have in their, you know, in their back pocket as a skill set to be able to work with different parts of the county. But both are very reputable attorneys, um, locally. and uh, I believe there's an upcoming form that we'll have some coverage of in our paper. Yeah, but it's going to be a
1: crazy ball it certainly sounds like it's going to be these two candidates are both democrats so is there going to be a primary and then assuming that there might be a republican challenger
5: yeah so right now the two of them are uh have stated interest in running for the position. Uh you have to get signatures and such so you know if they both decide to go forward with that there would be a primary usually primaries are in june-ish sometime around june um and then, of course, uh, we'd see what would happen. I haven't, like I said, heard of any Republican names coming forward uh, for the, for the post. But you know, Mike Schiff, who is the uh, sheriff in this county, uh, is a Republican, and the fact that he's come out in support of Brian, um, you know, tells me that uh, or, or a Democratic candidate, I should say, Brian Connelly. Um, I would think that. You might not see a Republican candidate this time for DA. But we'll, we'll see. You know, Anything can happen. Anyone who's interested or has you know, the background can obviously go for it if they get the requisite number of signatures. But as of this time, it looks like it's two people. We'll see where it goes. But like I said, it's going to be an insane election year.
1: And um, so we'll keep it covered. Certainly, certainly will be an interesting year. So I'm glad you are on board with the Reporters Roundtable and the local edition. So keep us informed. Of what's happening this election cycle? Chris, Chris for the Chuan Journal, let's take a look. Let's turn to you about what's happening in Ulster County and Ellenville.
6: Last night at the, uh, Warson Planning Board, um, discussed, uh, no, uh, Verizon's, uh, attorney, uh, for our area, Scott Olson. Uh, he's with young summer of Albany. Uh, he appeared again on behalf of an application and, um, uh what uh, what they're doing essentially is they're um upgrading the tower that's on um sure it is. is this Road in Walorsing. In is this is the big Verizon tower. It also covers a, a big part of Sullivan County as well as a large area of Ulster County. Anyway, um what they're doing there is they're putting up three new antenna uh to um uh, and part of that, part of this mission is to boost their C-band, um, spectrum, uh, abilities. Um, and now we're going to get a little bit of the radio frequency stuff. So just, you know, hold on to your hats. <laughs> uh, cause, you know, I know most people just, their eyes glaze when you start talking megahertz, gigahertz, <laughs> and all the rest of it. But hey, I've been doing it all morning, so. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, i say it's, it's, it's very important that you're doing this because, you know, living in a rural part of New York and like in Sullivan County and Ulster County and Ellenville, you know, self-service is very important. High-speed internet is very important. It's, these are topics that we are talking about a lot.
6: Yeah. And, and this, you know, I mean, the planning board doesn't have anything to do with frequencies or any of that, right? All they have to deal with is, is where the tower is, what it looks like. Whether it conforms to zoning and that's it, right? But we had a fascinating conversation because Paul Tasellino, the excellent, um, uh, well, Warsing, uh, councilman, uh, was there, uh, and he, you know, raised the flag of complaint over the dead spots. Uh, there are dead spots on Route 52, dead spots on Route 209. There are dead spots on Route 17. You know, I mean, we all know that there are areas where it just doesn't make any sense to keep phone call going for driving around. Um, so he raised that complaint, uh, and, uh, also described, uh, what this, uh, this, these, these new antenna, they'll be smaller than the older antennas and they'll be working to deploy this extra 200 megahertz or so of the range of the C band that Verizon has acquired. And what's going on, um, and people may be interested in this, uh, is that The C band, which is basically everything from about, uh, four gigahertz up to eight gigahertz, that stretch of the radio frequency uh, spectrum, uh, has been held by, um, satellite TV. Uh, and the lower end, down around four or just under, uh, was the preserve of, um, the big TV dishes, and there's still quite a there's still slices of that uh, frequency which are being used to download broadcast TV. That when you see those big round dishes, that's what that's about. Um, but the 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 primary satellite TV now is uh, dish uh, from Hughes or Direct TV, and uh, that uses uh, a higher part of the, the spectrum. So they're abandoning the the lower part, and therefore the cellular phone companies are moving into that. Um, and the, the, the benefit there is that at those lower, that, that, that's the sort of a middling frequency for them. They got the 2.4 and they got the 5.6. Uh, the 5.6 is a shorter, uh, you know, it's a shorter frequency and, and, and therefore has a less range. 2.4 has more range. So, but coming in here with the C band, adding that into their signal should help, um, Promote uh, the, the better better service. I got a nice quote from uh, off of uh, their website. Actually, <clears throat> Adam Kepi or Kopi I don't know how to pronounce this name. He's a senior VP of tech at Verizon. Described this rather nicely. He says, "Imagine adding several more lanes to a highway. The more lanes, the more cars can get on and off the interstate, and the faster they can drive." Same way, the more spectrum we open up on our network, the more data we can move across our network faster and more efficiently. Um, as a Verizon customer, I just simply hope that means that in the summertime, uh, we can make reasonable phone calls without them getting dropped all the time, you know. So that was, that, that, that was basically the, the, the big, the big event from that meeting. Um, and it set me off, uh, to spend, uh, a considerable amount of time this morning. <laughs> 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 R- reading those speeding. exciting, uh,
1: yeah, reading those exciting reports, I'm sure of, uh, Hertz and, and, and all the coverage area and all that good stuff. So.
6: Yeah, right. If, if Mr. Hertz knew what had happened to his name. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he was a, he was a brilliant, uh, you know, physicist, but it's so long ago. Anyway, so, so that, that, that was the, the, the big thing for that planning board thing and of course they approve the the application because all it is, is going to changing three pa- three paddle antennas with three smaller paddle antennas so you know no one will even notice but uh we will notice if we're verizon customers meanwhile um mr tozzolino um is on this uh, committee that's been set up by march gallagher in Ulster uh, county in kingston uh she's the county controller. And, uh, she's trying to, um, basically put a spur to the, uh, uh, the cellular companies and to Spectrum, uh, to, uh, improve, uh, service and get, you know, basically treat us like, you know, like we're in Manhattan. Come on. <laughs> you know, let's have, let's have a little better, uh, service here. Uh, with Spectrum, well, good luck. Um, but, uh, with the phone companies, they might be more responsive. Anyway, they're going to have a go. And Totsalino, uh, I think is going to be, he's on this committee that she set up. He's going to be, um, meeting with her and, uh, you know, coming up with a strategy to, uh, spur Verizon, AT&D and T-Mobile, uh, into improving things. Now, we should make a point that T-Mobile, which I'm using right now to zoom with you, um, has really done a good job with this out here in, in the, in the boonies. Uh, and part of that is that they very smartly 10 years ago waited in and bought a lot of the, um, 4G to 5G, um, uh, spectrum. Uh, while, while Verizon and AT&T were kind of like, we don't need this. Well, hey, so, uh, T-Mobile has it. And so if you can get cut to a T-Mobile mast, uh you can get pretty good internet and pretty good phone. Uh but anyway, that's that's kind to come and we'll see whether Tusellino uh has, has anything to report from this committee with Gallagher on um pushing things forward a little bit uh in uh with the big companies to improve stuff out here in Ulster County, Sullivan County and so on. You know, we'll see how it goes.
1: Yeah, definitely. And Chris, uh, what else is going on in Ella Villanosta County?
6: Yeah, other than that, you know, it hasn't been, you know, this is January. It's been quiet. There hasn't been a lot of uh, exciting um, stories. Um, we're waiting for, uh, I guess there'll be a public hearing soon. I think it's, well, let me think, the next planning board meeting uh, for the Somerset Partners uh, application at the Neverly for their redo of that, that property. But that's you know that's to come, and it's so, and it's really a pro forma because they've already got the Neg Dick and Underseeker and town board approval. So I don't expect anything big out of that.
1: If you want to hear the full episode of the Reporters Roundtable, you can visit the Reporters Roundtable's podcast, wjff The Reporters Roundtable. We'll be back after a short break and checking with Valerie Mansi and her conversation with Justin Gustine Auer. This is Radio Chatskill.
2: vet to vet of Sullivan County understands how difficult the winter months can be for veterans, service members, and their families. Through the PFC Joseph P. Dwyer Peer Support Program, help is available. Call 845-794-4228 and ask to speak with a veteran advocate or connect on Facebook and Instagram at Vet2Vet of Sullivan County. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, call the Veterans Crisis Line by dialing 988 and press 1. Paid for by Action Toward Independence.
0: Hey, it's Francis Lamb, host of The Splendid Table. This week, we are celebrating the Lunar New Year with Chinese cooking super bloggers Sarah and Caitlin Lung from the Walks of Life Vietnamese icon Andrea Wynn and Korean chef extraordinaire Huni Kim. It's dumplings and rice cakes for everyone. Coming up on the Splendid Table.
4: The Splendid Table, Sunday morning at 11 on Radio Catskill.
1: You're listening to Radio Catskill. I'm Patricia Robayo, Valerie Banzi had a conversation with Justin Goodstein, Awa, about his adventures in the arts, inspiration for creating a new art space, Rickett Goods, in Jeffersonville. Valerie says his trajectory is an interesting one. Here's that conversation now.
4: Good morning. This is Valerie Mamsey, your host for this segment of Radio Chatskill. Today, our guest is Justin Goodstein-Owa. He is founder of Brigantine Goods, a venue showcasing contemporary art, leatherwork, and curated vintage goods in Jeffersonville, New York. Welcome, Justin. So tell me a little bit about yourself and how you went from digital photography to a content manager to an <laughs> expert leather
3: artist. <laughs> It has really been uh, quite a journey. Really interesting. Uh, I grew up in Medford, Massachusetts, and um, I my mother uh, she's a graphic designer, and my father was sort of more of a computer guy. He was very much into computer engineering. Uh, he had a stint at MIT, and he was what was called a futurist. So um, I lost my father.
4: What's a futurist?
3: So he predicted the sort of future of technology, right? Uh, on the forefront of, of the computer revolution and the internet. So we were, when I was a child, we were one of the first, uh, houses in the Boston area to have an internet connection at all. It was like an eight K modem. It made all the sounds. It took 20 minutes to connect. And it was really just a fascinating thing. Uh, you know, visually in the audio elements of that, right. To be, uh, like a 10 year old surfing the web before the web was the web as we know it. So, um, that, you know, that combined with, uh, my mom's sort of artistic, uh, upbringing, having, having been in graphic design, we used to spend long hours in, in the attic of our old Victorian in Medford, um, with mom when she was doing her final projects. And I remember just every little attention to detail because fonts, you know, offset printmaking, uh, was, you know, it existed, but everything she had to do by hand. So she made these fonts up by hand with all these little dots. And I remember being a kid and just being so fascinated by that. So, you know, having that. And then in my formative years, when I was a teenager, uh, well, my father passed away when I was 11 years old and, uh, that definitely had a huge impact on our lives. We moved to Cambridge, Massachusetts, I continued my education at the Cambridge Friends School for middle school and went to Cambridge Ringe and Latin shortly after. And that Cambridge Ringe and Latin is when I discovered photography. So I just remember the first time being in that dark room and you're in this, this red light, you print a photograph and then you put it into the tray and you just see the image. Uh, I remember seeing the, the image just emerge from the emulsion and it was just such a fascinating, incredible thing to me. So as my interest in the arts, you know, really sparked there and soon after my mother, uh, started dating a guy named Christopher Busa and he had a house in Provincetown, Massachusetts. So throughout my teenage years, uh, he was the publisher of the Provincetown Arts Press Magazine. And throughout the years, I was taking workshops with, uh, at the Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown with Amy Arbus. Uh, that's Diane Arbus's daughter, mm-hmm. David Hilliard, Joel Meyerwitz. So that experience combined with my college experience, my Bachelor of Fine Arts in Photography at the Art Institute of Boston at Lesley University was just, so incredible just having such deep roots in the artistic community in Provincetown and in Massachusetts. So that's really where I, you know, my interest in documentary photography emerged. And that's what I was doing. I was, I was doing documentary projects with a four by five large format camera. And if you know anything about photography, you know, that documentary is more of a 35 millimeter. You got to move really quickly but the four by five really allowed me to slow down and document and almost create an archival collection of images. And that in turn led to my interest in archives to the job at Historic New England, where I was digitizing their print and photographic collections, uh, growing into the the next role at Boston Public Library, where I was digitizing uh photographic, print and photographic collections and manuscripts for pretty much every public library within the Massachusetts area. This is hundreds of institutions. So really just quite an incredible thing. And I'd say some of my most, you know, some of my favorite collections from that time were the civil war collections. Uh, they found a trunk of civil war photographs in the attic of uh of a homeowner in Medford, Massachusetts, as a matter of fact. And I digitized those prints and in, And what ended up happening is Ken Burns used them for a Civil War documentary. The photographs that I digitized. It was like,
4: that's impressive.
3: A bit of a wow moment there, right? And, um, so with, with all these things and just the arts, I, I just continued to kind of grow. I continued to evolve my involvement in Provincetown and that community. I mean, I remember one summer, uh, where I was, invited over to Robert Motherwell's house and I was standing in his studio and I looked on the floor and I saw Motherwell blue. And it was just one of those moments, you know, where you're like, wow, this, you know, the arts is really just, it can be such a strong and compelling thing. And so, you know, to today, I think that's really with that background, having the opportunity to open Brigantine Goods. Uh, having the opportunity to show artists who are not only local to the area, but I'm also hoping to bring in some international artists and uh, you know uh, a diverse set of of artists. Not only just visual arts, but I would love to be doing a performance art piece in the space and sort of see see what I can do with this space. What push the limits and the boundaries of of what this space. Uh, you know the possibilities that can be be within, right?
4: Now I'm curious about uh, your, how did you get into leather?
3: Oh yes, yes. So the leather work came about. Uh, my brother and I, we we were in our probably early 20s, so this was a little bit over a decade ago, and we somehow came across some leather, you know, just lying around, some scraps or something, and we said, hey, you know, let's make some wallets tonight. So we had no tools. We didn't know what on earth we were doing, but somehow we managed to punch a few holes in the leather, stitch them together and make little card wallets. And it's really funny because to this day, the wallet that my brother made, his name's Julian, by the way, Julian still uses that wallet as his primary wallet, which is crazy, which is crazy. And it's like, it's the durability and the, um, the textural element of the leather that really keeps bringing me back. But not only that, it's like a blank slate, right? So if you have like photography, if you have a blank negative, right? You can take a photograph. You can fill that frame with anything. If you have a blank piece of leather, you can really do anything with it, like a veg tan piece of leather. You can dye it. You can stamp it. You can shape it with, you can wet mold it. So with these things in mind, somehow I just became so, so fascinated by the craft. And as I started making you know, more and more projects sort of, you'd go online, you'd watch a YouTube video. You'd say, oh, that guy did it that way to achieve that look, whether it was like the dyeing process or the stamping and stitching process. How can I incorporate this into my next piece? And over the years you acquire all the tools. And then before I knew it, I was making, making smaller goods. I was posting it on Reddit, asking for feedback saying, what do you guys think? Can I sell this?" is this a thing that I can really do? And lo and behold, everybody, you know, the general public reacted very well to it. And they said, absolutely. You've got a really good eye for this. Keep going. So that's what I did.
4: And now you have a beautiful work of art with you today.
3: Oh, absolutely. Yes. I
4: I love the color. (laughs) Talk about blue, but that's a gorgeous shade of blue.
3: Yeah, it's it's uh, pretty much an oversized tote bag. Uh, It's 11-ounce leather. Uh, which is, which is the nice thickness. It gives it uh, a very nice structure. And yeah, this royal blue, I just came across it and I, I did a little tester and I said, wow, look at this, the depth of this color. And what I do in order to achieve its unique texture, which you don't really see everywhere is I actually put a layer of mink oil on before I dye and mink oil protects the leather, you know, from, from the, from the elements, right? So I do the layer of mink oil. I dye it. And then after that, I do one more layer of mink oil. So it's double protected and it'll, it just seals it up so nicely and gives it this very beautiful sort of vintage, uh, almost painterly texture. Um, and then I look to what color thread do I want to use? I used a white thread in this instance and it just came out so, so beautifully. Um, and I was able to edge it with, with another royal blue, uh, sort of edge coat. So, uh,
4: yes, I was intrigued by the edge coat. It's quite beautiful. It really adds another dimension to it. Is there anything else you would like to add to share, uh, with our listeners today?
3: Sure. Um, you know, I mean, I guess I could talk a little bit about the vintage yes. aspect of my business. Yes. Yeah. So, um, you know, another thing about, about vintage. And so these three things were kind of floating, right? I said, Oh, well, I love leatherwork. I have a degree in arts administration. Uh, I would like to open a gallery someday. And then the third thing was vintage. I've just always had such a, such an interest in, in the object, right? And not only how the object was created, how was it made? When was it made? What is the provenance of this object? Why does it exist? Right now, and how did it get here? So definitely, uh, when we talk about the vintage aspect of my business and I'm out antiquing, uh, I just, I think about these things and it's especially fun up here because you have so much history and, and in, in upstate New York, especially, you know, Western Sullivan County, um, and the surrounding towns and hamlets. Then you go to Pennsylvania and it's a whole nother thing. There's a whole, Extra rustic element that's kind of added to that. So when I'm out looking for these objects, I'm very, very careful about about what I select. Will it match the aesthetic that I that I have in mind? That I picture what a vintage object looks like, what it can be. So um, as you can tell, when I'm talking about these three things and bring them together into one space, this is this is what I had over the past decade. It's like you know these three interests. And then this space provided me the opportunity to really get them all together and share them with the world.
4: That's wonderful. Especially for those of us who live in Jeffersonville.
3: <laughs> it's, it's wonderful. I mean, Jeffersonville is a wonderful place. Uh, you have Narrowsburg, you have Livingston Manor, you have all the surrounding towns and hamlets, and there are so many people doing so many amazing things, right? You have the rough grouse gallery, you have more, even more galleries opening. You have even more arts involvements. The CAS and their new building is just an outstanding example. Uh, I also have heard about, um, a place called assembly and that opened in
4: Monticello.
3: Monticello. Thank you. Yes. And I haven't had a chance to go over and check it out, but. I kind of picture it as like a miniature Dia Beacon almost because I know that it does have to do with uh, minimalism, minimalist art, and sort of how it shares that space. So that's something I'm definitely very excited to check out and also just connect more with the artistic community. Um, you know, the film festivals uh, in in um, Narrowsburg, for example, Big Eddie Film Festival. Um, these are just really... They're great networks and it's just very exciting to be part of this, uh, this artistic and, uh, this artistic community up here.
4: Well, I'm sure we all can agree that we're happy to have you as well. So thank you so much. And uh, before we go, um, how can they see some of your work online?
3: Sure. So at the moment, I would definitely go to Instagram. So it's brigantine.goods on Instagram. That's where I'm posting my hours. That's where I'm going to start posting really high-level photography of my vintage stock. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. I'll I'll have the artist talk coming up on February 4th, Marjorie Murrow. Um I'll have that posted up really soon and I'll also have any information about upcoming exhibitions and
4: Well, thank you so much for coming in and sharing all of this wonderful information with with our listeners.
3: You're so welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Valerie. That's all for this edition of Radio Chatskill.
1: Remember, you can hear this episode and previous episodes on our podcast, wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Or find us online at wjffradio.org. I'm Patricio Robaio. Thanks for listening. Support for Radio Catskill comes from The Community Foundation of Orange & Sullivan Working with charitable people, businesses, and organizations to support worthy causes through more than 360 charitable funds. Cfosny.org Ba & Me Classic Vietnamese food made to order from fresh ingredients with locations in Honesdale and Livingston Manor. Menu and hours online at baandme.com and on Instagram and Facebook. And from listeners like you,
0: If you hear good music, you're listening to Radio Catskill. Clyde Alvin Yates III sets it off Saturday night at 7. At 9, an hour of Global Sounds on Afropop. Then at 10, Selector Starkey and DJ Chuck spend four hours of funk, hip-hop, and more on Old School Sessions. Saturday night, only on Radio Catskill.
6: Let me borrow it.
4: Music from a musician's perspective. I'm Kathy Geary, and on Now and Then, we explore the artistry of the singer-songwriter. Now and Then, Saturday afternoons at 3, on Radio Catskill. Listen local. WJFF Jeffersonville, W233AH Monticello. Support for Farm and Country comes from